Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. On this date, July 20th in 1969, the astronauts Neil Armstrong and Edwin Buzz Aldrin became the first men to walk on the moon after reaching the surface in their Apollo 11 lunar module. Here in Atlanta, you can experience some visuals similar to a lunar landscape without the need for a rocket. Arabia Mountain in East Decap has granite outcroppings called monadnocks, which create an otherworldly landscape. Recently, the 2,500-acre nature preserve turned 50 years old, and we'll hear more about this natural gem later in the program. First, outer space from another vantage point. Celebrated surrealist pop artist Greg Mike has called Atlanta home for over a decade. His mark can be found on murals throughout our city. Just look for his iconic loudmouth character, often overlaid on beautiful, realistic black-and-white renderings of wild animals. In 2009, The artist solidified his relationship with Atlanta and opened ABV Gallery in the Old Fourth Ward. And in recent years, Mike has become known for his NFT work. Mike partnered with Zero Mile to create the Outer Space Project in 2015, a week-long festival of live music, public art, pop-up shows, and more. The festival is back this year after a pandemic hiatus, and when City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes recently caught up with the artist, he explained how the Outer Space Project originated. We were... um traveling a lot for a lot of the murals and projects that I I was doing for my personal art. And I was meeting a lot of these artists, you know, all over the world. And when we opened our gallery, we started working with a lot of local artists. And we just felt like there was a need to kind of bring in artists from from other cities and support the local community and culture and create a festival that was kind of a mix of of everything that we do, with that being murals, uh, street art murals, music, design, and the community-based like live art events. Um, you know, this is, this year will be our sixth mission is what we call it. <laughs> and we had a, the two year hiatus due to the pandemic. So we're really excited to be back and, uh, get it, get it going again. That's fantastic. Well, some of the murals from past years can still be seen all over Atlanta. And I read that this year there'll be 16 new ones. Is that right? Yeah, so every year we shoot to do 16 murals and we break the lineup up of half local artists and half out-of-town artists. This year, we will hit the over 100 mark. I think it's 102 total murals completed since we started the project, which is really exciting for us. Congratulations. Thank you. Who are some of the artists that are participating this year? 
So this year we have an artist named Detour from Denver. Uh, he does a lot of fig, like figure work with abstract backgrounds. Um, mm. Emmy Star Brown from from Chicago, Illinois, more abstract. Um, Helen Choi, who's a local artist. Hyro from Miami. Um, Jex, who's from Greensboro, who a lot of people probably know from the Outcast mural that we painted in Little Five Points. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it became pretty pretty famous on the internet after he did that one. Yeah, so uh, he's coming back, so we're excited about that. But yeah, it's really a great mix. You know, from a curation standpoint, we always try to you know, mix with the local and, and out of towns and mix different styles. So there's a little bit of something for everybody from the creative art standpoint, whether you're into abstract or realism or you know more pop art. Uh, hopefully, there's a little bit for for each viewer. So are they given free reign for the content of their installation? Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that we've always promoted and pushed with this project is our motto is kind of explore the creative unknown with mural projects versus typical commissions. You know, a lot of times when you do commissions as, as an artist, you're given very specific guidelines in terms of what the client wants you to create. But what we've always urge our artists that are involved in the project is to try something new and you know a lot of artists don't get that opportunity to try a new style or or something that might push their work in a new fashion so we kind of just always tell them that to, to go in that direction and and see how you can develop your work and it's a it's a great opportunity to do so that's great and this year where will the murals be located so the murals are uh all across Atlanta, but mostly on the east side. We're, we're focusing a little bit more on the east side, but there will be some in, in Midtown. And, and we what we do is we'll release a mural map, which, which will go live on social media on our website as soon as all the artists are set up. Once they start painting, uh, we'll release that and then people can go out there and, and uh, you know meet the artists and see them work. And, and that's uh, really exciting for the artists as well. That's such a huge part of it. I'd like to pause for a minute and help our audience get to know you a little better. For the unfamiliar, can you share the story of how you came up with your iconic loudmouth character? Yeah, of course. So I grew up um, just, you know, loving cartoons and got into the street art and, and skateboarding scene when I was super young. Um, as a kid, I just used to always draw all those cartoons, uh, recreating, you know, pop cartoons and skateboard graphics. And so you can you can definitely see that in my style of work. I pull a lot of inspiration from retro mid-century cartoons. And really, I think my work just kind of, I hope, conveys a sense of energy and uh, with the bright colors and, and, and the loud characters. But yeah, that, that character actually came because I just kept drawing this reoccurring mouth on all my characters when I did a <laughs> series back in 2009. And I actually went to make a, a sticker and... Um, it was the at the time it was the only thing that because you know when I first started out, you know, I had to order a, a basic sticker to kind of to kind of give out to folks and and put up on the streets and whatnot, and uh, it kind of fit. It was a square and it kind of fit uh, the character fit perfectly in the square <laughs> shape, uh, the mouth section because like the eyes were getting cut off and all the characters and it, it kind of just happened to work that it fit fit perfectly in the square. Um, so it kind of happened organically and then it's just grown over time and been incorporated in the work. And, you know, now it's like seen in billboards with these community based phrases that people submit, uh, which we call the loud mouth says, uh, contest that we run, which is cool. Yeah. Very cool. Would you elaborate on the loud mouth says contest? Yeah. So over the years, you know, with art, I think you're always just kind of thinking about it nonstop with, with, with projects and with me, I, I created this loudmouth icon and and I realized like it was it became more and more since it was in the public in the in the public streets, you know, less about me and more about people interacting with it. Um, and this was before the mouth was saying anything. So there was a certain point uh, a few years back where I was like, OK, I'm creating this mouth. But what does this mouth say? And I thought, you know, it'd be more engaging and uh, if the community could say what Larry Loudmouth says if it's going to be on the street so we started the Loudmouth says contest and basically it was like a submission where you could submit what what whatever's on your mind you know positive wild funny witty um 
So we run that and then uh, select those, you know, our whole team gets together and pick our favorites and, you know, we'll do contests and then those will go up on billboards. So it's cool because, you know, over the years, the loud mouth icon has been, you know, less about what's just on my mind, but more about community voice. And I think that's, you know, what's important if you're doing public, public art. Oh, I absolutely love that. And Loudmouth has an entire community of his own now, right? The Loud Ones? So the Loud Ones, yeah, is an NFT project that we've been working on for the past eight months. And I've just been slowly building it out, which is exciting for me because it's a generative-based art project, So, which means you, do, you design and develop a bunch of different elements like, say, arms or eyes or noses or mouths. And then you run it through a computer software and those uh, randomly create different characters. Uh, oh. So we've been, yeah, we've been working on that and just taking our time with it. You know, I got big into the NFT scene uh, probably about two years ago, but I got really inspired when I heard about the generative software where, where you can yeah put all these elements into a computer and collaborate with a second brain, oh. as I like to say, because it's, the computer then is creating things that I would have never thought of. Like I would never think, okay, pair these eyes with this mouth and holding this element and, and creating a new character um, that would take me years to develop. It'll, it'll create 7,777 unique characters that are all one of one, no one that's the same as another. So it's cool because that's going to then inspire like the future of my work and those characters being integrated into murals, sculptures, toys, inflatables, anything that, I, that I'd like to use them for. So yeah, it's exciting, but definitely we're taking our time with it. There's no rush on it and uh, just trying to make sure it's all perfect. It's been a, a labor of love for sure. Yeah, that is very exciting. You will have an entire collection that's been co-collaborated with a computer. Yeah, I'm always excited to kind of figure out how technology can push it. And I, I find that the technology inspires the art and vice versa from like going from the digital, to the physical, to back to digital, digital. It's kind of like this endless loop that, that helps push the work creatively. Well, let's head back over to the Outer Space Project. There are multiple events going on aside just from the outdoor murals being created that we were speaking of. One of them is you're bringing your drink and doodle event to a really large room. Can you talk about the history of the drink and doodle events and what you're doing with it as part of outer space this year? Of course. So when we started ABV Gallery, uh, we started a monthly drawing event in our gallery in the old fourth ward where we would bring 12 artists monthly together to sit at one long table. They would draw and create live and then the artwork would go up for auction at the end of the night. We started that and this edition will be the hundredth one that we're doing. So it happened to, to line up pretty nicely with outer space. And I was thinking we got to do something big for this thing. Um, when we had our 50th edition, we had 50 artists. So this time we're going to be doing a hundred artists and that's going to be held at the Eastern in Reynolds town, which is a beautiful new venue by zero mile. And they're actually our, our partners and, and they help produce outer space as well. We've been doing it with them since they had opened Terminal West on the west side. So we thought it was a natural fit and progression for outer space to do some events over there this year. So we're really excited about that. That's on Thursday. How did you originally get hooked up with Zero Mile? So one of the partners and owners of Zero Mile is Alan Schur. He's actually one of my really good friends. And we met just through the business side of things when he opened Terminal West. Uh, we worked together to work on some of the branding and the design work initially when they were getting the venue started, but we just became really good friends and we work on a lot of different creative projects, uh, not only just outer space, but um, a lot of things in the creative world. So for this 100th Drink and Doodle event with 100 artists, the artists that are participating are absolutely no joke. Who are some of your favorites that are participating? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to to pick favorites out of a crowd I, I don't like to do that typically you know i compare it to someone saying who's your favorite child when you have kids you know i think i like all the different artists for different reasons and um, they're all folks that we've worked with in our gallery uh here or in drink and doodle events or on client-based projects through our agency but yeah it's a hundred local artists there's a few folks that are in town for the mural project that we put on the bill as well but not a lot but yeah it's, we want to get 100 artists in the room at the same time and see what happens i think it's going to be something magical that, that no one's ever really seen before just the creative energy and 
It's going to be explosive, you know, and overall on the project, there's a hundred and there's, I think there's over like around 170 artists. If you include all the drink and doodle artists. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're just, you know, we're happy to kind of just support local and bring in folks and hopefully do something uh, unique and different that people haven't seen before. Do you know what the setup is going to be like for the drink and doodle event? Are, Are the artists going to be on the stage at the Eastern? No, so we'll have a a DJ on the stage. Uh, We'll have visuals on the stage as well, but they'll be all on the main floor. There's going to be tables that are set up. Uh, That way you can go up to the the upstairs area and look down and see all the artists creating from above. Well, that is just one of many events. Two others are happening at ABV Gallery proper on July 22nd. One is the limited edition print pop-up show and the other is the group art show explorations. Can you tell us how these two exhibitions differ? Yeah, so the exploration show is all original one-of-one pieces and the the print show is, is obviously prints uh, on wood, which is a partner of ours we've worked with for years. They do really nice stuff where it's artwork that's printed on wood. Mm. Um, we've done releases with them pretty much every outer space, I believe. But they're sending a collection of sold out limited edition prints from their vault, which should be nice. And that'll be paired with all the original work in the space. The original work is from artists as well, not just specific mural artists or artists that are in the drink and doodle event, but just artists we've worked with over the years. So just trying to bring a lot a lot of different styles in the same room. Those two events, those are both free for the public, right? Correct. Very cool. The culmination of the Outer Space Project is the Big Bang Block Party. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, so this is the first year that it'll be at the Eastern. Previous year, we've done it at Terminal West, but we'll be following the same format. We'll have 10 live visual artists that'll be painting eight by eight foot canvas uh, walls uh, throughout the the venue, inside, outside, on the rooftop. Mm. Uh, We will have a Secret Walls live art battle, which is, if you've never seen it before, it's something incredible, just the energy alone. It's going to be a four-on-four team art battle. Secret Walls was started overseas in London uh, over a decade ago. We've done it as, as part of the Outer Space Project every year. And there's a DJ and two teams face off head to head, four artists versus four artists. They can only use black ink. There's no references, so you can't look at your phone. So everything you're drawing comes from your mind. And then the crowd determines the winner after 90 minutes. Uh, oh, it's, it's, think, think about it as like you know, the fight club of the art world. <laughs> and pe- people are, are battling with their creativity. But yeah, that'll be going on and, and JCO will be DJing that. And then we have Flying Lotus who will be headlining the Big Bang, who's an incredible DJ producer uh, creative as well. Yeah, what a great choice for an art event. Flying Lotus is a renaissance man. He recently directed his first film. He's done scores for anime shorts before. He's an incredibly talented artist and I can only imagine he's gonna fit right in with this craziness. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when we were thinking from a a musical curation standpoint, I really think he's just the perfect fit for a project like this, just from from an art standpoint. We're really, really hyped on it. Well, it sounds like a ton of fun. Greg, Mike, this has been very enjoyable. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us here on City Lights. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Surrealist pop artist Greg Mike speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Dropes. More information about the Outer Space Project is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll hear about one of our area's unique natural treasures, Arabia Mountain. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. If you have ever been to Arabia Mountain in East Cab, you may have felt as if you were walking on the moon. The granite outcroppings, called monadnocks, cover the surface of the mountain, creating an otherworldly landscape. This year, the 2,500-acre nature preserve turns 50. And joining me now via Zoom is Arabia Preserve Manager Robert Astrove. Welcome to City Lights. Good afternoon and so happy to be here. Well, thank you. Robbie, would you please give us a brief overview of the nature preserve's history and uh, talk about how it's expanded. Sure can, and thank you for that introduction. I, I had my eyes closed, I was listening, and I think to myself, wow, that's a place I wanna work at, and I'm so lucky that I do. I've been here for 10 years now, um, but we like to joke that the mountain has been here for 400 million years, but it didn't become public until 1972, and Previous to that, it was a rock quarry, very much like Stone Mountain was a rock quarry. And the Davison family operated here for many decades and made a decision in 1972 to donate and sale initially 550 acres to us, the citizens of DeKalb County, to begin the construction of a nature preserve. So after those 550 acres were purchased from the Davison family, it really was just a rock, and that's what the county owned at the time. Along came some visionaries to create the Arabia Alliance, and this was a, a nonprofit organization that went on to create the Arabia Mountain National Heritage Area. And that's one thing that makes this park very unique. We have a federal designation, and these were community leaders, people in DeKalb County government, and just visionaries for conservation to protect not just Arabia Mountain but the view shed of the mountain, meaning that when you go to the top of Arabia Mountain, what you see is all green and very little influence of humans and homes. And so it's one thing to have a vision to protect a place. It's another thing to actually protect a literal vision. And Arabia Mountain has been an incredible success story for conservation as the acreage has been expanding over the years. Uh, for example, in 2000, the DeKalb County citizens voted on a bond referendum for conservation, which, you know, bought thousands and thousands of acres. And as late as 2012, made another land deal to purchase 330 acres, which now includes Mountain View Lake on the south side of the preserve. Today, we are about 25 to 2,600 acres. It's so refreshing to hear the words conservation and success story in the same sentence. That is really great. Yet, for many years, very few residents knew about the preserve. Arabia Mountain was a hidden gem in DeKalb County. How did you and your team advertise and promote this place for people to visit? So that's a mixed message answer here. You know, as an environmental educator, 
And like many people in this field, we want to promote what we're doing. We want to share where we work. We obviously want people to come to the park to enjoy it, to receive all the benefits. Also to acknowledge as a conservation professional, there's unique sensitive habitat here. So it's always been kind of a challenge and paradox to invite people to the place that you're trying to protect, if that makes sense. So we, we do it in very unique and kind of creative ways, I guess. Uh, sometimes, believe it or not, I've actually turned down awards to kind of keep the secret a little more hidden. Um, but most recently with the pandemic, like many parks, not just in Georgia, but across the country, we experienced tremendous traffic. And so instead of promoting ourselves, we're now promoting the use and practice of leave no trace backcountry ethics, which is essentially teaching the public how to tread lightly when they come to a park like this that has sensitive plants. It's been a challenge for us promoting and not promoting and educating people. Well, I would think the conservation success story is worth people noting. It's worth having more visitors if they practice what you are suggesting of leaving no trace. I mean, you talked about a paradox. What sort of awards did you turn down? So a few years ago, it may have been a creative loafing award, but they have all sorts of categories for, you know, best this and best that. And we got best uh, park and trail system. And when they called to give us the award, I, I humbly thanked them. And then I asked them to make us number seven on the list. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they couldn't quite understand that. And I had to explain that the attention of being number one would it'd be bad. We, did, we wouldn't want to have just a million people coming here. And so I had to humbly decline the top uh, seat of the award and, and, and get something lower. And, and that was totally fine for us and our ego. And we're not, I don't have any hurt feelings about it. It was a decision that we had to make that goes beyond the park. It was really for the future generations that would come and visit here. So unlike museums, you can't control the number of visitors? You know, not here exactly. It's the beautiful thing about Arabia Mountain and definitely what sets it apart from our other Monadnocks, uh, mainly Stone Mountain and Panola Mountain, is that it's completely free and you can take your dog up here. There is nothing, you don't have to pay any money to park. And that really means a lot to me as a public servant that this place is accessible to everybody and there's very little barriers that stand in the way for visitation. So I take that, those facts with great pride. However, yes, there's no gates that are closing up the parking lots. You know, to tell you the truth, we don't even have staff here all the time when we need them. So it's, it's a little vulnerable for us. So I see. We're, we're being creative with how we can control crowds. And one of that is keeping this beautiful place hidden in plain sight. Okay. Well, let's talk a bit about those monadnocks. Can you tell us how the monadnocks on Arabia Mountain formed? Sure. So essentially, we can start with visualizing how a volcano works. And two plates, we're talking plate tectonics here, an oceanic plate and a continental plate. This, the oceanic plate gets pushed underground closer to the Earth's core and begins to melt. Then that material starts to rise underground towards the surface. In a normal volcano situation, liquid magma would come up to the surface and spew out and you have a volcano. But with Arabia Mountain and some of these other monadnocks, what if that material didn't quite reach the surface? Instead, as it rose up underground, it actually cooled and became a rock under the Earth's surfaces. And then millions and millions of years of erosion at the Earth's surface dropped the elevation of the ground. And at some point in time, again, this is geologic time, Lois, so millions of years, finally exposed that rock that was hidden underground all along. So it's the Earth's surface that had been dropping and dropping and dropping. And today, in 2022, you can see 
Stone Mountain, you can see Arabia Mountain, you can see Panola Mountain, and even Kennesaw Mountain that stand above the surrounding land as these little mountain peaks. But those rocks and those origins of those rocks have been underground all along. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Robert Astrove, Preserve Manager of Arabia Mountain. I read that in addition to being the Preservation Manager of Arabia Mountain, you are also an arborist and food forager. I'm curious about how you became interested in food foraging and what it entails. So I've always been a tree guy. In fact, when I first moved to Atlanta in 2007, my first job was at Trees Atlanta, and I've been planting trees before and after that. One of the things that happened to me in Atlanta, and it was a new place for me, I actually grew up in South Florida and worked in the Everglades, is I got to learn about so many more tree species that live here in the Piedmont. And within that, I learned about the service berry, which has come to be my favorite tree. And one of the reasons that I love it so much is because it has this delicious, super good for you berry that you can harvest in the summertime. And I just started getting more interested in tree crops and food coming from the earth. And instead of going to the grocery store, you know, I, I work in a forest every day and I just got really curious and I just started educating myself, taking classes and started eating things off the ground and getting weird looks. And, <laughs> and uh, maybe you'd see me on the side of the road eating something and getting more weird looks. And it just became this adventure for me that it was very inspiring to you know, stay connected to the planet, to, you know, find a little snack and to, you know, share that with other people. And so I guess I've been foraging for maybe 10 years now, and it's been so much fun. And you actually developed a service berry festival. What sorts of foods, drinks do the purveyors create from service berries? So yeah, the Service Berry Festival is an event that was conceived with my partner, uh, Jessica Pfeffer last year. And essentially during the pandemic, the restaurants were just brought to their knees and were closing and having no staff. And, and typically with foraging, it is a part of my, uh, well, you know, any good person in Atlanta has a side hustle, right, Lois? <laughs> so I was basically foraging and bringing things to restaurants to, be, to appear on menus. And I just didn't feel right doing this during the pandemic uh, with such a crippled, you know, service industry. And so Service Berry Festival was a way for us to kind of give back, celebrate the service berry and, and have fun. And so I called up some of my favorite chefs and mixologists to be a part of it and they made so many different things. There was a service berry salsa. There was a service berry ice cream. There was a service berry waffle. We had uh, service berry cocktails, um, service berry 10 different ways. And it was just, like I said, a, a really great celebration of this tree and community. And we also were giving back as well. So the proceeds of the festival went to create a service berry orchard planting that is going to be planted this year at Wadsworth Academy. That's a DeKalb County Elementary School. And we also did a service berry service project at Arabia Mountain, which combined yoga and trail work. So it was a really well-conceived festival and just felt really good to do something in a time where everything seemed to be closed. So I know from the people that were attending, just being within with community, being surrounded by friends was so important. And I'm so glad we got to make that happen. I'm curious about the etymology. What is a service berry? I mean, is it did, does it have that name because of a service it provides? What does it look like and taste like? Sure. So I'll talk about the fruit first. So the service berry is a blueberry-like fruit that droops from the tree. It's 
They're also called Juneberry, which is acknowledging the month that the fruit is ready. And um, it's very high in antioxidants and it's sweet and it has a little bit of an almond kind of aftertaste from the soft edible seed that is inside. And the name derives from lots of folklore. Uh, the one that I can share, for example, has to do with uh, all the servicemen back in WW1 uh, that were killed. And if they were killed during the winter, the ground was frozen and they could not be buried. And so they had to wait for a signal that the ground was soft enough to dig. And that signal came about now in early April when the flower of the service berry opened. And that was the signal to signal the, the ground thawing and they could begin their services for the dead. So. Oh, that, that is such an interesting backstory. So service refers to the funeral service. Correct. There was another story as well, Lois, that talked about when uh, the preacher men would start to do their revivals and travel the circuit uh, from city to city on their stagecoaches and whatnot. And again, that was early in the springtime, uh, again, when the service berry flower was, was out. So a lot of what we do in society has to do with timing. And if you look to uh, the way Native Americans named the full moons, for example, the strawberry moon, the wolf moon, they all are acknowledgement of the timing or the phonology of the world around us. Mm. Do people ask you about learning how to forage? I'm curious about what tips or tricks you might give those who want to begin foraging or things maybe they shouldn't be doing. Absolutely. You know, you can die from this. <laughs> But what I, what I can offer is go slow and just stick to what you know. So for example, you always want to start with a proper ID. And I don't mean, I think I know what this is. You need to be 100%, okay? And I'm just want to share a few more things that fall into like good foraging ethics, okay? So you want to be 100% sure you know what it is. If you do start to harvest, it's a good idea not to pick everything. We have a little saying in the business that you want to have the 15% rule or 10% rule to always leave 15 or 10% behind. Uh, you never want to forage where there's exposure to, say, pollution. So think about next to roads or by the airport, things like that. And also, you never want to pick anything that's sensitive. For example, Lois, the ramp season. And ramps are one of those species that is known for people to over harvest. And so if we take all the ramps, there's not going to be any next year. Lastly, I'll end with just do your homework. There's a lot of groups out there that have interest in supporting foraging and education. Uh, there's plant walks you can do both locally here in Atlanta and in North Georgia. And, you know, I would just start off with picking one or two things every year. And then after that, go on to the next thing and the next thing. And by the time you get to 10, 20 years, you'll have quite a list, but just start slow. With Earth Day upon us, what recommendations would you give to people as to how to make changes in daily life to help preserve the planet? I mean, where do people begin? I mean, this is... This is the million dollar question, Lois. And I'm really glad that you're kind of honing in on behavior because the ultimate goal of environmental education is not just knowledge, but it's actually behavior change. And that can take years sometimes. But what I can offer is a few things. One thing, which is obviously pretty on brand for Robbie is plant a tree. That's an easy win that we can make and to create a memory with someone that you're planting with so you can go back over and over and watch it. I would offer this as well, how to transform ourselves from consumers into producers. How can we start to create an economy that celebrates making and makers 
and not just buying stuff all the time. And I think that will cause us to be creative as well. I would also offer to connect with local organizations, people in Atlanta and abroad that are doing the work that we can learn from, that we can be inspired by. And the thing that I would say that would cause the most impact is eating locally. And I'm a huge advocate of Atlanta's farmers markets and local food. And kind of in the same regards of check yourself before you wreck yourself, we can check our plate before we wreck the planet. And what I'm referring to is on average, the food that is found on our plates travels 2,500 to 3,000 miles. And within all that miles comes gas and petroleum and trucks and a lot of resources and time. And it's not even picked fresh, it's picked early so it can make it to us. And instead I offer visiting a local farmer's market and getting to know the producer and getting to look them right in the eye and ask questions on where it came from. What are your growing practices? It's very likely that the food that they're showing you on the table was harvested that day or even the day before. It will have the most amount of nutrients and vitamins and you're supporting your local economy. And really, really great is a lot of our local markets um, double the SNAP EBT benefits, which we formerly called food stamps. So there's really nothing standing in the way for Atlantans getting local, fresh and healthy food. And by eating locally, it will definitely drop our impact on the planet. Arabia Mountains Preserve Manager, Robert Astrove, from our conversation recorded in April of this year. More information about Arabia Mountain, as well as Robert's passion for food foraging, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. It's no secret that the film industry in our city has been booming for years now. In our series, Film Crew Files, we get to know some of the hardworking Atlantans who keep these sets running smoothly. My name is Sarah Riney, and I live in Grant Park. I've been living in Atlanta since 1996. I've been working in the film industry for about 11 and a half years now. Um, I am a set deck buyer, which means I work for the set decorator. Set decorator is in charge of everything you see on a set that is not a hand prop. It's lighting, it's rugs, it's electronics, it's vintage items, it's period furniture appropriate to the era that the script is written. If it's outside, outdoor sets can include dumpsters, rusted car parts, pieces of tractors, huge electrical power poles and lights like you would see in a parking lot of a mall, which is not necessarily easy to find. So it's a little bit of everything. It's kind of a wild goose chase every single day, but that's the fun part of it. How did you get started in the film industry? When I met a set decorator at a party and she mentioned that she had a show coming up soon that she was about to start, she was gonna need a set deck buyer. And I was asking her, what exactly is a set deck buyer? And that's how I found out that the job even existed. Tell us about a normal day at work. There is never a normal day for me. Uh, every day is different. I'm always working a certain amount of shopping list. I'm going through what sets are coming up, what sets have moved up, what sets have fallen back due to weather. For example, if it's an outdoor set, it's getting pushed because we have a lot of rain coming through. So the schedule constantly changes. I'm basically on the lookout for everything all the time. You never know what I'm gonna need on an episodic. On a movie, you have a little bit more idea of what you're gonna need throughout the entire run of the production. Um, but especially in episodic, it is wise to take photos of just about everything you see that you think you might be able to buy or might need in the future. Some days I have to run to set last minute because something broke. If you see me on set, that's probably why I'm on set. I'm flying something in at the last minute because something was broken or misplaced. What's your favorite part of the job? All the different characters and interesting people you get to meet and strange places you get to visit uh, when you're looking for something very specific. 
For example, there may be a very special tool that is only available from some certain guy that happens to hoard that tool and then you get to meet him and look in his warehouse and see all kinds of interesting things that he has in there. The hardest part of my job is sourcing really specific things, like if a director decides they want a baby grand piano that's painted with tiger stripes. Well, that's not something you're going to find and that's something we have to get made. The things that uh, are the hardest to find are the things that are the most specific. If you just need a house to look like someone's house that shops at Target or someone's house that shops at Macy's. That is easier to understand than very, very specific things. And when a character is really well written, they're easier to decorate for because you can almost visualize in your mind someone you know that's similar taste or similar style. Are there any common misconceptions about your job? The biggest misconception is that I shop all day. Like I just buy fun stuff. Um, those days are few and far between. A lot of days it's scrambling to catch up with a schedule. Uh, a lot of days it's finishing research on something so that you can actually pull the trigger and buy something. And plenty of time it's finding a replacement for something that was supposed to ship in time that did not ship in time. So I'm not strolling the mall casually, loaded down with shopping bags like uh, some kind of cartoon. I am probably in someone's garage looking at rusty bicycles on a rainy day and the roof is leaking. Will you share a favorite production you've worked on? The Walking Dead was really fun. A lot of great people on that show. Second might be Coming to America, um, the sequel with Eddie Murphy uh, and the usual characters. Uh, that was great fun. Worked with a great crew on that. And um, that one was really fun to match some of the stuff from the first movie, which of course no longer existed. So we had to recreate those sets. And then also working on the new stuff, the palace was amazing. And uh, some of the other crew worked really hard on the palace and it was outstanding. Um, I wish we could have seen more of it, the way it was filmed. Perhaps didn't highlight the setting as much as it could have, but that's neither here nor there, because I am not a director. Atlanta is great for the film industry. There are a lot of resources here. There are a lot of great places to buy things. People are pretty open to film crews and understanding how much effect we have on the economy and how Everything that we do trickles down, uh, whether it's like my paycheck and then I go out to eat at my favorite restaurants or I, I buy things for my own home or whether they understand that um, this file cabinet and all these records and this stereo system from 1970 that I'm buying out of your garage, that is film money helping you sell the things you don't need and then have money to buy things you do want. I think people also understand that the industry being here and us being such a production hub does have a wide ranging effect and whether it's people are being trained up and then uh, they also train other people. Just the general creativity of people in Atlanta. In general, there's been a creative squad here for quite a while that has done all kinds of theater, haunted houses, pop-up events, all kinds of campy, fun, wacky, comedic, interesting people. And um, I like to think that a lot of my friends who were doing those things for years ended up in the film industry so that they could have health insurance and a full-time job. And I think that that has been a huge boon here and people don't really realize how many people who used to have two and three jobs as a bartender or uh, doing their comedy on the side and that kind of thing have ended up in the film industry and given back to that community so much. The positive effect the film industry has had on my life, I would like to say that um, I probably wouldn't have my house. Uh, I joined into the film industry right after I got laid off from my corporate job and working at a corporate nonprofit. Um, and so if I hadn't had the film industry and hadn't had that steady amount of work, I probably would have not been able to pay my rent and my mortgage after the market crashed around 2007, 2008. I've met a lot of great friends. I've met a lot of really cool people. I've seen interesting things and read really funny scripts. And um, in general, I would say that it's been a positive effect 
and I think it's been a positive thing for the city. Um, similar maybe a little bit to how the tech industry in Atlanta grew and grew and grew, but I feel like the film industry has a lot more branches on the tree and um, affects a lot more people because there are all these little smaller industries, whether they are for casting or whether they're for renting your car to a show or people who make specialty props and specialty costumes freelance. It's really just become an all-encompassing thing within the city and um, I believe it's been a, almost entirely positive for the city and for the people who work in the film industry. Set Deck Fire, Sarah Riney, and our series Film Crew Files. More information about Sarah's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., artist Dr. Fahamu Peku tells us about his new project, Black Boy Journal, plus a visit with Sam Irvin Beam of Iron and Wine. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.